Amen. Do you join me in prayer? Well, God, we thank you, and we come this morning to call upon your name. We glory in you, our God, our strength. You've told us to seek your presence continually, and we do that now. You've told us to remember your wondrous works, all the things that you have done, and we do that now. You are our God, and there is none like you. You never promise that what you will not keep. You never fail, regardless of how small or how insignificant we might appear. You have a people that have been purchased by your blood of your Son, and you will bring them to glory. But Lord, we have sinned and failed. We have doubted this week. We have not been who we are in Christ. We have loved the world. We have ignored your word. We have forgotten you by thinking so much of ourselves. So forgive us, Lord. We know that you will. Just as you plucked Israel out of Egypt and just as you rescued David from the giant, just as you snatched Paul on the road of Damascus, you have saved us. You have redeemed us. You have called us. You have purchased us, predestined us, foreknown us, justified us, glorified us. We are yours. And all our hope is in you. And we believe that one day we will stand um, in the day of judgment only because of your precious son. He has done all of this for us. Even more, he has given us his life in exchange for ours, our great God. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And now, Lord, we desire this good news of your salvation to extend through all the earth. We pray that you bless this town and this community, Lord God. We pray that we would see more conversions. We pray that the lost would be brought into this place, that they would meet you here. We pray, Lord God, that you would save our children. May all who grow up hearing the gospel believe it entirely. Save our loved ones and spouses, Lord God, who do not know you, our co-workers and friends. Save our enemies and our neighbors, the people we commute with and the ones at the coffee shop. We pray, Father God, that you would bless the work of the Crisis Pregnancy Center and for the... um, The home, Father God, for those women who are abused can flee in safety. We pray, Father God, that you would give them the ability to staff those places. We pray, Father God, that you would bless this church. We pray that you would bless Reconciled Church, the church that's being planted. We pray that you would use um, Charlie and Sandra in that work. We pray that you would bless the, um, the skate park ministry and fill Scott and Amber with your spirit and enable them to do continue the good work and what they are doing there. Encourage them, Lord God, to see and, and let them see fruit for their hard work. We pray that your gospel would go forth through this nation, Lord God. And we pray that we would be a nation committed to you, not for political reasons or societal gain, but for the glory of your great name. So, God, we pray that now you would prepare our hearts to receive your word. We pray that it would change us. What good is hearing unless it changes us? Wash us, Lord God. Shape us. Refine us. Shatter our misconceptions about you. Reconstruct our values. Make us different. Make us less and you more. That would be best of all. We pray that you do it for Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Before we uh, 
get to our uh, our message, I'm going to I just have a, a brief announcement, and I'm I don't mean to steal Maya's tasks. She'll be giving us some announcements later, but I do want to make sure that you are aware of our entry points class, which uh, uh, will happen in a couple of weeks. Second second Sunday of next month is our entry points class. There's two reasons. Um, you want to come to the entry points class. And the first reason you want to come to the entry points class is you just want to know more about this church. Um, maybe you're exploring what kind of church is this? I'd be interested in knowing more about this place. What do you guys teach? How are you structured? Uh, even things like how do you spend your money? We'll go over all of those things. We'll talk a, a little about a lot about what is a church? Why does this church exist? What is our mission, our purpose, those types of things? Um, why did Christ even establish a church? So just uh, a lot of kind of nuts and bolts uh, that I think are important as we uh, as a church. So that would be one reason. The second reason you would want to come is that you are interested in being a church member. Now, we um, we believe wholly in church membership. You're, and, and I'm a guy, really, probably 15 years ago, I would have not... Uh, I would have said, listen, church membership is a pragmatic thing. You can do it or don't, whatever. It's good for us because it keeps us from being liable and uh, helps us in our insurance. Pragmatic. Uh, I've changed my views completely. Um, I think the Bible, uh, the New Testament only makes sense. Really, there are a number of commands in the, in the New Testament that only make sense if there is some form of church membership. Um, and we'll talk about those things. So if you want to be a member of the church, and let me tell you what I mean by member. Member isn't knowing the secret handshake. Uh, we don't have one of those anyway. So um, membership, really, when we talk about church membership, we're talking about a job description. You are saying that I am going to allow myself to be accountable to the church and... I'm going to hold the church accountable to maintain the gospel. My job as a member of this church is to make sure that the gospel remains true and it is preached accurately and that I'm accountable to the church and they're accountable to me. It's a job description. It is what we do. It's not what we are. So I would invite you to come to that um, uh, meeting. It will be immediately following our church service. Um, we do provide lunch, so if you'll just let me or Simone know, um, that would be helpful so that we have enough food for everybody. So, all right. Now, with that, we're transitioning. Let's go ahead and uh, talk about the Bible. Acts chapter 15, as we continue our study through the book of, the, of Acts, one of the things we value here is expository preaching. We'll talk about that, actually, in, our, in the entry points class, why we teach the way we teach. But uh, we're studying the book of Acts. And let me just say, when we come to a passage such as the one we're at today, well, I should say this. Pretty much when I begin a study of a passage, one of the questions I almost always ask, why is this text here? Why is this passage even included? Now, sometimes the answer is really simple and it doesn't really, um, I don't have to wrestle too much. It's pretty obvious. But sometimes we just want to ask ourselves, why did the author include this text? And, and our passage today, um, I think it's, that's an important question. Why did Luke include this passage of text? Now, there are going to be a number of different answers you, we can apply. And some of you, 
um, really spiritual folks are saying, well, because the Holy Spirit inspired him to do it. And you are correct, but that still doesn't really answer the question. It just means then why did the Holy Spirit inspire Luke to include this passage of text? So sounds really spiritual, but doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't satisfy me. I don't know that it's a satisfying answer. Another one would be, well, Luke's a historian, and he is giving us an accurate historical account of some of the events that occurred in Antioch and um, in the early church. And that, of course, would also be a great answer. But still a little unsatisfying. Some of you might say, well, Luke is using this particular passage to serve as a bridge because um, Paul's been serving with Bar- Barnabas, has been a main character in the book of Acts up till now, and after this, Barnabas disappears. We don't hear from Barnabas anymore. And we do start hearing from a guy by the name of Silas. So perhaps what Luke is doing is he's showing how. Barnabas exits the scene and Silas enters the account. And I think that's actually a pretty good answer. The the disappearance of Barnabas and the appearance of Silas. Well, as we go along, I hope to address that question. I hope as we, we go through this text, we're going to answer that question of why is this passage of text here? Because the bottom line is this. This is a a difficult passage of text. It's difficult because it's sad. It records conflict. And conflict of such a nature that brothers um, divide. They can no longer get along with one another. So with that, let me just go ahead and make this statement. The church is always threatened because the church is always a threat. The church is always threatened because the church is always a threat. We've been seeing this as we've been going through the book of Acts. We've been seeing that the church has been threatened. There are both external threats and internal threats. The external threats is mockings. The churches, uh, the people of God have been mocked. They have been threatened with physical harm. They have had physical harm inflicted upon them. They've been imprisoned. They have uh, received death sentences. They've actually been killed for their faith. And so there has been this external threat from outside the church. People have come in and sought to destroy or disrupt what God has been doing within the church. So there's that external threat. But here's the other thing we've noticed in the book of Acts is an internal threat. There's an internal threat that rises up from inside the church. In fact, Paul said to the Ephesians, he said, listen, after my departure, savage wolves are going to rise up from amongst you. And they're going to seek to scatter you. Jude talks about how people have entered into your assembly and they are are destroying the church from inside. So there are these internal threats. And we've seen it. False teaching is probably one of the primary means of of, of that which will threaten the church from inside. We've seen moral compromise Division. These are big um, means or methods of destroying the church from the inside. And that's what we've been seeing. In fact, the most recent threat we've seen to this, to this church in the book of Acts is through the false teaching of the Judaizers. Now, you may not know that term, Judaizers. It's a good term to learn if you're um, new to the Bible or you're a student of the Bible. It's a good term to learn. 
Um, and a Judaizer was just simply who somebody who said that the work of Christ is not sufficient. That you need to follow the laws of Moses. Basically, they said you have to become a Jew first. Become a Jew first, then you can become a Christian. So follow the laws of Moses, and then you can then your sins will be forgiven through Christ. But that's a false teaching. It's false because the New Testament teaches that the work of Christ on Calvary is sufficient for our salvation. Christ's work alone will save us. So that's just a little bit of an introduction, kind of where we've been and maybe a brief overview of the book of Acts. But let me give you a preview of, uh, of where um, I'm going to, to go today. And so just a quick preview. I, I mentioned earlier, and I'll mention it again, that what this text is about is there is a contention between brothers in Christ, Christians. There's a contention between them, and it is a contention that is so severe that these two men can no longer serve with one another. It was an argument so severe that these brothers in Christ said, man, we can't even work together. You go your way, I'll go my way. That's our text today. Another thing, though, that I want to highlight is that despite this internal threat and despite this division, the, missions of, the mission of Christ's church is not derailed. Christ's oversight of his church um, propels it to fulfill its mission. So Christ is able to keep his church even in this mess. And that his purposes in his church uh, are fulfilled. And then another issue I hope to, to address is Christ's faithfulness to his people. Christ's faithfulness to his people enables them to overcome previous errors. And I think that'll be good news for most of us because I, don't, I know I don't need to have a show of hands, but if I ask how many of you um, have at some point failed in your Christian life, um, either 100% would go up or there would be some people who are not quite being honest. In which case you failed, so you should put your hand up. Anyways, what we're going to see is that even that does not derail Christ's um, love for his people. So that's, those are some, some of the things we're going to go. So let's go ahead. Let's read our text. Follow along with me as I read our text. And then we'll, we'll look at what Christ might have for us. So this is Acts chapter 15. I'm going to begin with verse 36 and read through the end of the chapter. Verse 41, listen to God's inerrant word. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And they went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So just a brief passage of text, only a few verses, but um, let's take a look at what's going on here. And it begins with Paul just launching an initiative to visit the churches that they had planted on their first missionary journey. You'll recall that Paul and Barnabas 
um, had taken some people along with them, and they'd gone on. Really, this was the first missionary journey, reaching out to Gentiles, that is, non-Jews, and proclaiming the gospel in places the gospel had never been preached before. They came back from that journey, and now Paul's saying, you know what we ought to do? We ought to go back and visit those churches. We ought to go back and see how they're, all, how they're doing. And he suggests, Barnabas, why don't you come with me? Let's go together and see how the churches are going. And, and I just want to point out and, and note something about the person of Paul. Because Paul can be a very um, bold individual, sometimes seen as, uh, un, well, he is uncompromising. But we should never neglect to see the, the nurturing side of Paul. In other words, he's like going, let's go check on the people. We went into these towns. We proclaimed the gospel. People believed. Churches were established. We installed elders into those churches. There was organization. We should go back and make sure everything's going okay. We should see about our brothers and sisters. Paul has this well, um, this, this care for believers. And it's quite possible that maybe the same False teachers that had almost just, that had threatened the the church in Antioch were threatening these churches. Basically, Antioch, um, the, the city of Antioch, um, rejected the teaching of some of these false teachers. Now, perhaps they've moved along and they're going to some of these new churches where the uh, the people hadn't been Christians very long. I mean, these were brand new believers. Paul plants a church, or Paul preaches the gospel. People believe, and he plants a church, and then he makes elders. These guys are like brand new believers, but they've become the leaders of the church. And so the churches are organized, they're structured, um, there's a leadership, uh, there's leadership in the church, but Paul says that we need to go check and make sure that they're doing okay. Make sure that the false teachings have not infiltrated. Um, And so that sounds good. And in fact, um, Barnabas is probably on board. That's a great idea. We should go and visit those churches. Way to go. Now, I'll tell you what, Paul. When we go, why don't we bring my cousin, John Mark, with us? Did you know that Barnabas and John Mark were cousins? Yeah, they are. So he says, let's bring John Mark with us. Let's flash back a little bit and see why this is going to become an issue. And in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, we see this. This is on the first missionary journey. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Did you pick that up? They're on their missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, when we were in that text, I didn't make much of it. I just kind of noted that Be aware, John left them, and he returned to Jerusalem. This is the point of contention. This now is the problem. Paul says, Barnabas, let's go back to the churches. And Barnabas says, yep, I'm with you, Paul. Let's do it. Let's bring John in. And Paul's like, "Uh, no. Not a chance in the world. Note in Acts chapter 13, it says that John Mark had left them. I want you to understand how strong a term that is. He didn't just like, well, I'm sick. I gotta, I'm going to have to go back home or I have family issues. This word has the idea of he abandoned us. He left us in a bad position. He abandoned the work. 
Christ had called us to a work and he abandoned it. And then, so what's going on is Paul's saying, I don't think it's wise, Barnabas, that we bring somebody like John Mark along with us in this new journey. We're going on a new missionary journey and you want to bring John Mark. I don't think it's wise. This guy abandoned us. Don't you remember? Why would we bring along somebody who had abandoned the work? And in fact, in our text today, it says, um, Paul, but Paul thought best not to take with him one who had withdrawn. Again, another really strong word, very strong. Um, it, from it, we get the word apostatize. I think the idea here is Paul is seeing that their missionary journey was commissioned and uh, and was divinely called. Remember, they were in a worship service and it said the Holy Spirit set Paul and Barnabas aside to go do this work. Paul saw this as a as a work of God, a divinely inspired work. And John Mark abandoned the call of Christ to do what he had committed to. He committed to Christ to do this work and he withdrew from doing it. This is nothing short of a complete abandonment, perhaps even a denial of Christ. Paul takes this in a very, very strong terms. The actions of John Mark were in direct rejection to a command of Christ. Wow. And Paul's saying, I don't think it's good to take that guy. By the way, I don't think Paul ever really... Sometimes we have this idea that Paul and Paul didn't like John Mark or was angry. I don't think that's the case at all. That's just my opinion. I, I think that Paul always thought John Mark was, was a good man, but he's not fit for the task. He's withdrawn. This idea of withdrawn not only has this idea of apostatize, but it has this idea of withdrawing from, the, from a fight. That is, when the arrows are flying at us and we're hunkered down, John Mark's running for his life, leading us in a threatening position. Paul's like going, I can't trust that guy. When the bullets start flying, I need to know somebody's got my back. Because remember, Paul knows when we go on this journey, this is life and death. There's no guarantee we're coming home from this journey. We got beat up a lot on our first journey. We can pretty much count on the fact that we're going to get beat up again. In fact, I got beat up so bad that people thought I was dead. So I need to know. If this guy's coming with us, whoever's coming with us, I need to be able to trust them. I, I've never been in the military or law enforcement, but man, you need to know. If you're in the military, you need to know. You got my back. And that when the, the battle gets hot, you're not running. This is where Paul's at. He says that John Mark did not go with them to the work. So, that's just a little bit of background. There's this sharp disagreement then. Remember, John, Mark, and Barnabas are cousins. Um, I'm sure that has something to do with things. Uh, but there's this sharp disagreement. Again, a very strong term. Um, in fact, when it's used, it's used in a lot of different ways in the Bible. But when used negatively, it can even refer to God's wrath against sin. That's how sharp the disagreement was. This provocation. And so they separate. They separate. Paul and Barnabas um, 
separate. Um, Paul goes, Paul and Silas, Paul picks a, a gentleman by the name of Silas who we've been introduced to in, in uh, the previous, couple previous sermons. And uh, Barnabas takes Mark and they uh, go back. And they, uh, it says that Barnabas and Mark go to Cyprus. And I think I have a map. Do I have a map? Up oh, there it is. It's not very good, but anyways. So Antioch's up here. Hopefully you can see it. And uh, so John, Mark, and Barnabas head down to Cyprus. Um, Barnabas was actually from Cyprus. That's where he lived. And church tradition tells us that um, he ended up coming back and living on the island of Cyprus. He died there. There's a church there with his name on it. So they go back to Cyprus. This was the first stop of the first missionary journey. But Paul and Silas go this way, up through Tarsus, which is Paul's hometown, then Derbe and Iconium and Antioch and Lystra, which were some of the first churches that they had visited. So um, Silas and, uh, I'm sorry, um, Barnabas and, and Mark go south. Silas and Paul go north. And um, this is the last time we hear from Barnabas. Um, there is, I think, one passage in 1 Corinthians that talks that Paul references Barnabas. Other than that, Barnabas fades from the scene. We, we know nothing more from him in, in the Bible. And so um, that's our text. Let me uh, make a few observations um, about this text. The first observation that I'd like to point out is that spiritually mature brothers who are in agreement theologically can falter. Spiritually mature brothers who are in agreement theologically can still have division between them. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying it's a reality. Paul and Barnabas were strong believers. They knew the Lord. They loved the Lord. Um, they were mature in Christ. They agreed theologically. In fact, they were together in this whole idea of how is a person saved. Um, the Jerusalem Council that we studied the past few weeks, you can go back and listen to that, sermon.net slash C-O-R-P. You can find that on, online and um, and you can listen to those. And they agreed that, listen, a person is saved by grace through faith. We, we agree with one another on these theological matters. And we're both brothers in Christ, been brothers in Christ, love the Lord, and are growing in the Lord, and yet they divide on this issue. And here's the other thing we should point out. This is not an issue. The, the division here is not over some theological essential. It is over practical ministry. It is not over whether or not Christ's sacrifice for sins is sufficient. It is not over whether we're saved by grace through faith. It is not through, did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? It is not over the nature of God. It is not over some theological essential. It is over practical ministry. It is not over the what to do. It's over the how to do it. How should we accomplish the task? This isn't, should we evangelize, should we go to unreached people groups and share the gospel? That's not the issue. Everybody agrees, yeah, you need to go to unreached people groups and share the gospel. That's how they're going to get saved. Both John, I'm sorry, both Paul and Barnabas agree, yes, we need to go and share the gospel to unreached people groups. The, the problem is, how do we do that? Barnabas would say, well, we need to take John Mark, and Paul would say, uh, no, we don't. 
I'll go with you, Barnabas, but I'm not taking John with us. So these are not new believers, and yet and they're men who have risked their lives for one another. They have literally risked their lives for one another. And, and, I, and so I guess the point here is, is that sometimes we might expect that brothers and sisters in Christ who've been believers for a long time are somehow going to be without conflict. I'm not saying, I'm not saying, oh, well, this is a good thing. I'm just saying it's a real thing. Um, Christians are far, God doesn't use perfect people. And you know why, don't you? Because there are none. (laughs) Well, there was one. Christ our Lord. So, so we have this issue that, um, that even within a mature, growing, theologically agreed um, brothers and sisters in Christ, there still was conflict. And again, and, and a, lot of, a lot of times that's how church division happens. It's not over the what, it's over the how. We all agree, well, we should, re- we should, we should reach our community for the gospel. And I, I think we could take that up in a business meeting and everybody would say, yeah, we're on board. The methodology, though, somebody, we might disagree over that. Well, one person says we should do it this way. Another person says we can do it that way. And we say, well, we only have limited resources. There's only so many of us and there's only, you know, so much time. I think that we would be best to to uh, capitalize on our on our resources, our human resources and our time resources by doing it this way. And another person says, no, we should do it another way. And all of a sudden we've got a problem. Not over the what, but over the how. So I guess I just bring that up that, you know, we should learn maybe how we, how can we love and how can we um, work together even when sometimes we disagree on the how. So that's the first observation I want to make. The second observation is how differing personalities can lead us to sin. Or maybe I should say how differing gifts can lead us to sin. Oftentimes people, when we get to this passage of text, people will ask, well, who's right and who's wrong? Was Barnabas right and, and Paul wrong? Or was Paul right and Barnabas wrong? And sides have been taken. John Calvin's would, would solely, completely side with Barnabas. He'd say Paul was wrong. Did the wrong thing. And I think that he makes some really, really good points. Others would say, no, obviously Paul was right because the church commended them. And all we hear about is, is Paul and Silas after this. We hear nothing from Barnabas, an indicator, I think, a, indicating to, to that position that maybe um, Paul was right and Barnabas was wrong. My position is, um, I'm going to ride the fence on that one. It'd be very politically correct. I think they were both wrong and they were both right. I can Personally, I can see both sides of this. But one of the things we should see is that um, in this conflict, we see both weaknesses. Sometimes our weaknesses are our, sometimes there are weaknesses in our strengths, or maybe I should say sometimes our strengths become weaknesses. So in this case, Paul has strength of conviction. He is unyielding to compromise. And, and that's, a great, that's a great gift to have. Somebody who's firm in their convictions will not compromise. Now, we would love that. We love that in a church. 
But Paul's unable to accept a weaker man, and we would say, because he's unyielding to compromise. Barnabas, on the other hand, we love Barnabas. Um, In fact, that's not even his real name. Um, He was given that name. Barnabas means son of encouragement. And the disciples, the apostles, gave him that name because he was such an encouraging guy. I mean, how would you like to have your name changed to, you know, you're an encourager. We just know you as, as a person of encouragement. Here comes Encourager. Barnabas had that name because that's who he was. Um, And he's willing to come alongside people on the fringes, the unaccepted, and he's able to show grace to people who fails. On the other hand, Barnabas was guilty of compromise himself and Paul had to rebuke him. You'll see that in Galatians 2.13. Maybe in an example in our day, how, how some of our gifts... See, if you're a Christian, God has given you spiritual gifts. Gifts to use for his glory. But even those gifts have some weaknesses when applied incorrectly. So, for instance, let's just use an example. Say God has given you the gift of teaching, and you are a brilliant teacher. I mean, you can look into the Bible, and you can bring out its truths and you can see its, uh, its meanings and you can communicate those meanings well. You're an expert at it. Brilliant at it. Praise God. Churches need good teachers and we would all be grateful and thankful. Another person, perhaps, maybe not so much a great teacher, but has incredible gifts of mercy. Able to see people's hurts, their, their deep wounds. They they, they see it from a mile away and know how to give comfort to a person who is truly, truly hurting. And we would all say, man, we need people like that in our church. Sometimes, though, when a person is hurting, a teacher comes along and gives them a lecture when what they need is somebody to sit and put their arm around them. And the great gift of teaching actually is a weakness. It actually isn't what the person needs. What the person needs is a friend to sit by them and put their arm around them and be merciful to them. Likewise, perhaps what the person needs is to be taught and an act of mercy is just simply enabling them. Do you see how even though these are great gifts, they can become weaknesses? All right, so this is what's going on. Paul has great gifts and so does Barnabas and we see their weaknesses rise up. And we see those become um, exasperated or uh, illuminated and come to the forefront. And so what we have here is the how one carries out practical ministry is the cause of friction. How do we carry out practical ministry? I think we need to show mercy. No, we need to we need to teach them. No, we need to be merciful. No, we need they need an outline. That's what they need, and they need me to instruct them in that outline. No, no, what they need is for me just to comfort them and be with them and and let them know it's going to be okay. Are you kidding me? That's a soft approach. They need my heart because if they heard what I had to say, by golly, that would snap them out of whatever they're into. The other said, no, no, it'll just damage them. This is why we need the Spirit of God to guide us and lead us. And that's what's going on. That's one of the things going on here. These men are gifted. But the result is friction and they end up separating. 
So I just bring those up that as we work together and walk together and live together as a body of Christ, as a church, we might agree on a lot of things, but oftentimes it's the how we get things done. If you're married, you know this well. Most of the time, husbands and wives are in agreement on things, but the way we're going to go about getting things done... I think it's funny. We've we've done a lot of construction at this church, and... uh, I know one time we had to push this wall back over here. We had some cottonwood trees and the roots were pushing the wall down. And it was interesting to me <clears throat> listening to all the, the experts in how to fix that wall. Because one expert said, this is the way you need to... We all agree the wall needs to be fixed. Everybody. The wall needs to be fixed. And one expert said, this is the way you need to do it. Then you talk to somebody else, and say, ah, that guy's an idiot. <laughs> that won't fix the wall. Here's the real way you fix the wall. You talk to somebody else, those guys don't have a clue as to what they're talking about. Are you kidding me? Are they even Christian? <laughs> a little hyperbola there. We all agreed the wall needed to be fixed, but the, the way that we're going to go about fixing the wall was one of dispute. Uh, we finally settled on one and everybody got along and we all said once we settled on a way, everybody got involved, even those who disagreed. They came out and helped fix the wall and, you know, do what needed to be done and it got fixed and you didn't even know that wall was coming, was, uh, was compromised because, um, and, and nobody left the church, not over that. Um, it, was just, it was just one of those things that, that oftentimes we agree on the how. It's the what, or the what, but the how is is a challenge. And it's the same way in ministry. So, so let's, let's, as we go through things and as we grow and live as a church, let's, let's remember that we agree probably on the big things and on the essential things. We might disagree on the hows and maybe we can be a little flexible on the hows. Another observation uh, to point out is how God wastes nothing. And so just as the fires of persecution spread the seeds of the gospel to the Gentiles, so now the fires of personal conflict advance the gospel with two missionary teams. So you remember when Stephen was, was killed for his faith, what happened? People scattered out of Jerusalem, right? And because what did Jesus first say? He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And where was the gospel going? To Jerusalem. It wasn't going anywhere. And after Stephen's murder, people fled for their lives and the gospel went out. It was the seeds, it was the fires of persecution that resulted in the spreading of the gospel. And so here, God wastes nothing. I'm not saying that this is somehow, this division is somehow pleasing in the eyes of God, but God works these things to bring about his purposes, and now you have two missionary teams, don't you? You just doubled your missionary efforts. God wastes nothing. Incredibly, not even our sin. Now, that doesn't mean should I sin so that God's purposes come about. Paul deals with that in Romans. Read Romans, all right? Uh, the answer is no. Um, I'm just saying that God wastes nothing. You cannot derail God's purposes. All right. Beginning of this message, I said, I wonder why, uh, one of my questions was, why did 
Luke include this account? Why did Luke include this account? There are probably a couple of reasons, but let me try to give you what I think is maybe one of the primary reasons. Um, Why is this text included? This text is included because it tells us something about Christ. We are going to understand the New Testament. We're going to understand the Bible in light of Christ. Christ is the central figure of Scripture. Um, And he is the filter through which we understand the text. And this passage actually tells us something about Christ. You're going, really? I don't see anything. I don't see Jesus' name mentioned in there. I read that text. I don't see Jesus anywhere. How does this tell us something about Jesus? Let me see if I can make this work. The first thing we see is the transformative power of Christ. The transformative power of the risen Christ. Let's look at John Mark. Remember, John Mark's our guy who abandoned the work that Paul's talked about him in terms of apostasy and all of these really, really strong terms. That's how he is referred to in our text. But if you go to Colossians chapter 4, verse 11, you don't need to necessarily turn there, but in Colossians chapter 4, verse 11, um, Colossians was probably written 10 to 15 years after this, this event took place. And in Colossians, Paul is in Rome, and so is John Mark. And it is in Colossians chapter 4, I'll turn there, Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, and I think we need to include 10. This is what Paul says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Do you see what he just said about John Mark? First of all, welcome him. He is a fellow worker. He's one of the few who stay true to the faith, and he is a comfort to me. How awesome is that? But then... In 2 Timothy chapter 4.11, Paul's really waiting, awaiting execution. More likely than not, Paul dies not long after 2 Timothy is written. And in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul declares that John Mark is useful to him. He says, uh, bring, let John Mark come to me. He, he's about to be executed, but he recognizes that John Mark is a useful servant of ministries, a useful servant of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make sure you get John Mark to come. He is a man who is useful in the kingdom of God. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, um, Peter refers to John Mark as my son. And then, we need to look at John Mark's greatest contribution to the church. Not that so much that he was a comfort to Paul, not so much that he was faithful in ministry, not so much that he was referred to as my son by Peter. Those are all really, really important things. But John Mark's greatest contribution to the church, it is a contribution to you. It is something that you have benefited from, maybe even benefited from this week. Do you know what John's contribution to you is? The Gospel of Mark. Guess who wrote that? The guy who abandoned in the, in the midst of the mission field, John Mark, ends up 
transcribing the words of Peter. He is the inspired author of the second gospel. And in fact, most Bible students consider it the first gospel written. Many would say that the whole gospel genre was invented by John Mark. I don't know if that that could be debated. And in the Gospel of Mark, one of the main themes is discipleship. In other words, what does it mean to follow Christ? It means leaving everything to follow him. John Mark rebukes a superficial understanding of Jesus and highlights what it means to suffer for Christ. Wow. Here's a man who knows what it is to fail Christ and be restored. Just like Peter. He knows what it is to abandon the work and yet not be utterly forsaken by Christ. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And again, I don't think I need to have a raise of hands, but if you have ever, ever failed in your service and your love for Christ, in a big way or a small way, I want you to know that the power of Christ's restorative power is greater than your failure towards him. And John Mark is one of the guys we can go to. This is here, I think. Luke puts this here to show us the great power of Christ to restore somebody who abandons the work. Maybe you've been, you, you believe Christ has called you to do some, some ministry or some work or something to stand strong in an area and you've just blown it. Maybe it's a one-time thing. It happened in the past and you're still feeling the weight and the guilt of it. Or perhaps it has been this ongoing thing that you abandoned Christ and it's been many, many years and you've wandered away from Christ. I wonder if he would ever have me back. I present to you John Mark. Evidence number one, that not only can, will he bring a person back, but he will restore them and work through them. I don't know if he'll work through you in mighty and miraculous ways and have you write some sort of a gospel. Well, he won't have you write a gospel because there's no more gospel to be written. But to be some great, well-known individual like John Mark became, I don't know about that. I do know that Christ's restorative power is greater than your abandonment of him. John Mark is our evidence. So the first thing I think we see here is the, the exaltation of Christ in restoring broken people. The second thing we see is that Christ is, we see the exalted Christ ruling over his church, the exalted Christ ruling over his church. One of the things that's easy to forget about the, the, the book of Acts is how it begins. The book of Acts begins with the ascension of Christ. And there's no mistake about that. It begins with Christ, the risen Christ, ascending to his heavenly throne where he sits down and he begins to rule. He's now ruling over his church from heaven. Acts begins purposely with the ascension of Christ, that Christ is king. I know all it's easy to get wrapped up when we study the book of Acts. It's easy to get wrapped up in all of the various disciples and apostles and all the various people. We meet a lot of interesting people in the book of Acts. And we see them doing great things and some people doing not so great things. But what we need to remember 
is that the book of Acts is not necessarily about these people. It is about Christ ruling and reigning as king. And all of these people, these disciples are his ambassadors carrying out his work. Christ is the central character of the book of Acts. Why? Because he's the one seated on the throne, ruling over, over his church. Paul is not the central figure of Acts. Peter is not the central figure of Acts. We read a lot about them. They, they take up a big chunk of space in the book of Acts. But the book of Acts begins with Christ seated on his throne, ruling over his church. And that's what's going on. So we need to also remember that Christ's work triumphs in a sinful world. And whether it's sin from the outside or whether it's sin from the inside of the church, what Christ began to do and teach will come to fruition. This is why Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Why? Because I'm the Lord of all of this. And, and hell has no authority over me. Maybe much stronger than you. But not stronger than me. And so, in this church, we need to remember, I'm not in charge. The elders are not in charge. Yeah, you see us and you hear from us and God has commissioned um, leaders to, to lead a body. But Christ is in charge. It's Christ who rules. Let's never forget that Christ rules over these things. All right? And all that he began to do and teach will, will come about because we cannot thwart, not even our sin thwarts the plan of God. So, um, and not only does it not thwart the plan of God, but he is able to restore us and bring us back to be useful servants and useful ambassadors in his kingdom. Well, I'll, uh, I'll conclude with this. My conclusion is that... Um, God uses imperfect instruments because there are no other kinds. And that includes this pastor sitting behind this pulpit today. All right. If you've known me long, you know, yeah, pretty, pretty flawed individual. All right. Not my purpose to be to fail or to, to sin or to, to harm or to um, offend I often said this, if you attend this church long enough, eventually we'll offend you. All right. I say that not because I, we want to, but just because we're just a bunch of broken, flawed people. We're going to say something that doesn't, that doesn't come out right. We may even just be angry. We may even just have, ugh, just have something and it just comes out. Perhaps we make a promise to you and we don't fulfill it. Welcome to the church on Randall Place. But our goal isn't to harm you. Our goal isn't to hurt you. Our goal is not to offend you. Our goal is not to, to do anything. I'm just saying that folks, um, and I'll have people will say, well, you offended me. I'm going to go to another church. I'm going, what church are you going to go to? You're going to go to the church that doesn't offend you. Where can you go to with a group of people that isn't at some point going to offend you? That group doesn't exist. So let's toughen up and learn how to love one another and forgive one another when we act stupidly, including me. You know, when I act stupid, it's just, oh, there goes Pastor John being, acting stupid. We're going to love him anyways. And I'll do the same for you.
So God uses imperfect instruments because there are no other kinds of instruments to be used. And the other thing is Christ continues to reign over his church. And let's just be aware of that. Christ continues to reign. That's good news that even when it looks like, man, things don't seem to be going well, Christ is, is ruling over his church. He's ruling over his people. He's Lord of everything. And um, our goal is to submit to him and do what he wants us, do what he's called us to do. But ultimately, Christ is Lord and we are not. So if you will, would you stand and uh, <clears throat> we'll pray. We will uh, sing a, a final song and then I think Maya is, are you doing announcements? Maya is doing announcements. Um, Maya does everything today. So she does announcements, she sings, uh, takes up the, uh, no, she didn't take up the offering. We'll get you next week. Um, but um, anyway, what was I saying? Well, we'll conclude. Father, we're grateful that you've loved us and we thank you, Lord God, that um, we see such practical things in the Bible, Lord God, and we, we are grateful. Lord, we, we are always sad when division happens. We're always sad when brothers and sisters divide, and especially over non-essential things. The reality is it happens. Even a guy like Paul, even a, a great man like the Apostle Paul, even a great man like Barnabas, giants of the faith, even they, Lord God, couldn't overcome some of their personalities and some of their giftedness. So we pray, Lord God, that you would have mercy upon us and help us, Lord God, to um, stand firm on those things that need to be stood firm on. There are times to split. And there are times, Lord God, where we need to be flexible and help us to know and discern when to do which. So grant us favor and mercy this day, Lord God. We're grateful for your love and kindness. I pray that we would be, that we would forgive as you've forgiven us. A hard thing to do, oftentimes. We pray, Father God, that the wounds that we've inflicted upon one another, Lord God, that you would, you would begin to heal them. That you'd begin to salve them, Lord God. So many times we just wound one another. And the longer we have a relationship with one another, the more wounds we seem to inflict. So I pray, Lord God, that as, we've, as this church has been together for a while, Lord God, that um, you'd heal those wounds that we've inflicted upon one another. And help us, Lord God, to be long-suffering as you're long-suffering with us. So Lord, we give you praise and we give you thanks, Lord God. We thank you for this church. It is a good church. It's a great group of people, Lord God. And uh, I thank you for the ministries that, that flow out of this church. We pray that you'd continue it. Have mercy upon us, Lord God. We pray that you would always be Lord of this church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.